The Lord does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. I was reminded of this quotation by Martin Luther as I was reflecting on the readings for this week. The two parts of this statement are both addressed. Why does the Lord not need your good works? Because he is utterly all-sufficient in and of himself, and our actions do not meet a need in him, and he does not require our assistance in any way. Our neighbor, by contrast, is dependent on others and requires assistance and interaction with others for basic needs and well-being in this life. In a general sense, they need your good works and you need theirs. In a specific sense, as you navigate your individual life, you provide care and provide for yourself, but you also have the opportunity and wherewithal to care for others that God has placed in your path. Psalm 125 is one of the Psalms of Ascent. These songs were likely sung by those in Israel who would travel to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and worship at the temple. Sung also during return from exile, these psalms envision a return of God's order in the land and a restored worship of the Lord among the people. The psalmist begins by musing on the comfort of being in the city of God. He writes, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The sanctuary is located in a prominent place in the city. Those who worship God there are linked to Mount Zion. Not just the physical location of the temple sitting on a hill, but also the firm refuge that the Lord's presence provides for those who trust in him. Those who trust in the Lord cannot ultimately be shaken, but will endure through the ages. Just as someone might look around the city and see hills and mountain ranges rising in the distance, surrounding them and hemming them in, so too the Lord stands as a strong and immovable shield around the one who trusts in him. This refuge surrounds the people now and into the ages. In verse 3, the psalmist recognizes the reality that those who do not trust in the Lord may rule over the land and in the life of the people. For those enduring exile, this would be an important thought. Though exile from the land is a reality, this reign is not eternal. One day it will end. It's not eternal like the Lord's, but will one day end in righteous judgment. Verse 3 declares, The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. For then the righteous might use their hand to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. These verses are a strong encouragement, but also a stern warning. If those who trust in the Lord themselves pursue evil, they too will be removed from this place. If peace is to be on Israel, it will require both the providence of the Lord and the obedience of the people. Whereas Psalm 125 has the corporate nation in view, Proverbs 22 addresses a similar theme with the individual in mind. In verses 1 through 2, the proverb draws a contrast between a life of integrity and a life of wealth. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Part of the point here is that you can be extravagantly wealthy and still have a character that is bankrupt. The goal is not material wealth, but moral wisdom. The great equalizer here is a shift in comparison. 
You might be rich in relation to a demographic group or in the context of a cultural setting, but when measured against the plane of ultimate realities, the means of measurements level out. The rich and poor, though separated on the horizontal social plane, are located in the same place on the vertical spiritual plane. The Holy One of Israel is their maker. This should humble the rich and encourage the poor. Verse 4 hints at the further point of application. It says, Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Verse 8 continues this theme and homes in on the special responsibility that power, privilege, and wealth are supposed to entail. It says, Whoever sows injustice reaps calamity, and the rod they will wield in fury will be broken. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Though the realities of the rich and poor are assumed here, a countercultural transformation and connection is also envisioned. Those in positions of power are warned that injustice will produce a harvest of calamity and shows of force will eventually be overtaken. The generous will be blessed because they have, t- they have taken of their wealth and chosen to share the food they have plenty of with those who are in need of something to satisfy their hunger. The point seems to be here, from a place of safety and security, you are able to reach those who are vulnerable. A further motivation is added toward the end of this chapter. The proverb warns, Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court. For the Lord will take up their cause and will exact life for life. Those who possess privilege, wealth, and security are to imitate the Lord in this way. Because the Lord will take up the cause of the poor and vulnerable, so too should a believer in this same Lord. This is a remarkable vision of God's character as one who is near the broken and is present to those in need. It's also a strong warning to avoid preying on the poor and a firm motivation to be strong on behalf of those who are weak. Reflecting on this theme in Psalm 125 and Proverbs 22 can get us in the right frame of mind to hear what James is doing in the second chapter of his New Testament letter. As part of his exhortations to wisdom and patience and suffering, James stresses the deceptive and destructive power of partiality and the integrated relationship between faith and works. James writes, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Christ Jesus, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special treatment to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Oh, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. 
James here puts a magnifying glass on the practice of partiality within the churches and the schism that comes from favoritism. The poor man and the rich man are on equal footing when they enter the gathering of believers who have been bought with a price and who have been redeemed at great cost. Those who have been redeemed by sovereign grace should be the ones most willing to extend the right hand of fellowship to those the world might deem unworthy of status. James sums this theme up when he urges in verse 12, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The Lord does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Question, what do the rich and poor have in common? Answer, the Lord is their maker, and they are not hidden from his sight. Question, why should I help those around me who are vulnerable? Answer, because you have refuge in the Lord, who surrounds you like an immovable mountain range. You are secure, and part of the very reason God has so secured you is so that you might reach out your hands and run with your feet to help those who have lost their footing in this world. God has given us his word that we might love him with our whole selves and love our neighbor as ourselves. Praise the Lord for his grace. Mm-hmm.